Welcome to Insights. This is Paul Ellis, Managing Director of Ellis Wealth Management, where we encourage you to invest in what you love. Ellis Wealth Management is an independent financial services firm focused on planning, advice, coaching, and investment management. We are dedicated to the families we serve, and we encourage you to invest in what you love. Within Insights, we look at ways to make our world richer through focusing on sharing, and developing human capital. Well, all right. What a great day it is in the Pacific Northwest, and I am really pleased to have with us today Jason Pittman. Jason is, uh, well, I'm going to let him explain what he is and what he does. I'm absolutely thrilled that he would be able to to spend time with us today. Uh, Jason and I met during the Down and Dirty training hosted by... Tim Grover and Sherry Wank, and uh, Jason's an individual who definitely made an impact and uh, on me, and um, through our previous uh, interactions and conversations, I wanted to invite him and to have him share his stories, his passions, and and share his insights. And Jason, I know you have a busy schedule, a very busy schedule, so let me thank you for making time for us today. Oh, Paul, thank you so much for having me. It's uh an honor and a privilege to be here. Well, Jason, thank you. If you would share a little bit what you do, you have one of the most interesting careers I have ever come across. Uh, Well, by trade, I am a nuclear powered submarine officer in the United States Navy. Uh, So I, I drive submarines, I train crews, I execute missions vital to national security. My current job is that I am a, uh, a senior inspector of uh, an examining board that rides submarines and aircraft carriers and examines their engineering departments to make sure that they are maintaining standards and constantly trying to improve themselves on a daily basis. My goodness gracious. That, that is a high achievement. That is really high achievement. What, what influenced you to get into the field? In all honesty, what influenced me was the size of the crews in the submarine force and the type of people that we work with. I was a uh, I was an ROTC student at the University of Texas, majoring in music, mm. and I had to uh, Texas majoring in music, mm. and I had to uh, as an ROTC student, you kind of have to choose a warfare specialty. You're either going to go. Uh, special warfare, SEALs or EOD, uh, surface Navy, a pilot of some nature, or submarine force. And I, uh, like many submariners in the 90s, I'm blind. So being special forces or a pilot was out of the question real quick. And so I had to choose between the surface Navy or the submarine force. And I enjoyed the smaller crews. I enjoyed, uh, during my midshipman training, I was able to go out to the fleet and ride ships. And I just enjoyed the interactions with the crew, um, the tightness, the, the kind of family atmosphere where everybody knew everybody and everybody was working towards the same goal. You know, a fast attack submarine is a fast attack submarine. 
there's no ammo submarine. There's no oiler submarine. If you're doing, if you're in the submarine service, you're doing the submarine mission. And that, uh, that appealed to me. So I, uh, decided to go submarine. Wow. Now, does that take a special kind of mindset? I mean, you know, I, I don't like, I don't like being underwater any longer than I need to be. How does, how does one get used to that or acclimated to that? That That's, that's really amazing. I think, uh, I mean, we do get a little bit of psychological screening. Obviously, a uh, somebody with claustrophobia is not going to do well. But I think for the most part, once you're underway, you realize that it's not that the, you know, it's not like World War II movies that you see where the submarine is super, super small and tiny. You know, these ships are, you know, a fast attack submarine, 300 feet long, 30 foot in diameter. So it's not as tight as it used to be. It's just that there's not a lot of rooms to go to. Mm-hmm. And um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm average height, so it's not like I'm having to duck everywhere I go. So you're just kind of operating. And you realize once you're out at sea that you get so busy between standing watch, you know, operating the submarine, preparing for the next mission, working on qualifications, constantly improving your level of knowledge. Uh, and oh, by the way, somewhere in there trying to eat, sleep, and maybe try to stay in shape, that you're, the days start flying by, and you don't even realize that you haven't seen the sun in a week until it's already gone. Hmm. I can understand so that. So you just kind of, yeah, so you, you just, you know, it, it's kind of like the person where, you know, you got really into a groove at the office, and you're just banging out emails, yes. and you're making phone calls, and you're working it all out, and you look up, and it's like, wow, eight hours has already gone by. It's like that almost every day because you're just constantly, there are things to do and you're constantly working. Wow. I, I can see that though. I can see that. If you're really focused on what you're doing, time can really fly by. Absolutely. I, uh, I often tell people, it's like, yeah, they'll, uh, between now and the end of your tour, it's going to go in a flash. But there will be some long days between here and there. <laughs> well, what was you, you mentioned that you were ROTC. Uh, you graduated from the University of Texas at Austin, right? Hook them. Mm-hmm. Um, absolutely. Absolutely. And you were a music major, were you not? I was. So how does a music major, how does that connect with the Navy? For, for, for those that don't know, there's a, there's a large arc of all types of people that are successful in the service and in life, but generally people don't think of music majors as being successful in the military or the Navy. So how did that work for you, and what are some of the biggest challenges you faced uh, when you were starting out with, with those that may have had preconceived uh, notions? I think the uh, the biggest thing that it did to help me was, you know, as a, as a musician of any any kind, especially uh, I was a low brass player, so obviously playing in large ensembles, learning to work with a team and learning to understand that we each have our own individual parts that we have to play, that we have to be the best at, because everyone else is counting on me to have my stuff down pat. Mm -hmm. And so, and being able to hear, you know, across an ensemble and and listen and go, okay, this is getting a little off. Let me make some adjustments. That kind of ebb and flow of teamwork is some people have it right. Some people are having a bad day. 
whatever it takes to make the overall performance succeed. And also just the value of hard work. Just so much of a, any performing art really is do it again, do it again, do it again, until you can't help but to do it right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so those are all skills that translate into almost any field, in, in, in my opinion. Being able to work with people, being able to understand that maybe people aren't performing at their best that day, trying to carry the load when you can, except hoping that they can carry the load when, you, when you're not up to snuff. And just understanding what it takes to truly work hard to be the best at doing anything. You know, back to your question of some of the uh, impediments, <laughs> as they were. I, I was the first music major selected for nuclear power. And a lot of people, I think, were just amazed that I could find that I knew where the building was. And uh, we're just like, wow, <laughs> a music degree, huh? You know, this is nuclear engineering. I'm like, I'm aware. And no, I have not seen math that has letters in it for two years. But here we go. Um, and so I think a lot of people were just, well, let's see what happens. Let's see what the kid can do. Um, and so expectations were low, which uh, on a certain level, I think, is, uh, is helpful. Because when the expectations are low, it makes it just that much easier to smash through them with a, with a brick. And so... People didn't expect much of me, and so I worked my tail off because if there's nothing else, I've always recognized that hard work beats talent. And so I may not be talented, more talented than you, but you will not outwork me. That's um, excellent. So I put, a, I put a, just a heck of a lot of time in studying and through brute force, really, uh, managed to make it through the nuclear power pipeline. And, you know, and ever since then, I always – get people that seem to be surprised like oh you're a music major i'm like yeah that doesn't that doesn't mean i can't do this very leadership focused and engineering focused kind of work if anything i think that makes me a leg up because i can do music and i can do what you do so why are you judging me uh, that's an excellent point it's an excellent so, point so i've always kind of used it as a bit of fuel and rightfully so or not, maybe maybe people still think that, maybe they don't at this point in my career after 23 years of doing it. But I've always used that kind of nobody thought you could as a fuel to do the very best I can to help people achieve things that either they didn't think they could do or other people didn't think they could do either. So kind of a long-winded answer, but I hope that kind of got to it. No, it's an ex excellent answer. It's an excellent answer. Well, what do you wish you would have known before you would you've got started in uh, you know, on your path? I wish I would have known that so much of what I do is dealing with people, and I guess I kind of implicitly understood that. But uh, especially as you're going through leadership courses, especially in the military, a lot of them are kind of taught from this "I'm the leader of a rifle platoon in World War II or Korea" type of mindset which is a, a definitive type of leadership. Um, and then you get to, you know, your first submarine and it's nothing like that at all. You're, you're kind of a project manager mm -hmm. as it were, mm -hmm. except that you're also responsible for these, um, these sailors who may or may not have the life experience that you have. You know, you're a junior officer on a nuclear submarine. 
Some of them definitely do not have your life experience. Some of them have college degrees too, and mm-hmm. they went the enlisted route. So they're just as smart, if not smarter than you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so trying to learn how to walk that line of learning from and respecting and asking for help from the people that I'm technically in charge of was an interesting lesson to learn early on in my career. Well, you had made a statement on one of our meetings um, that one of the biggest, one of the challenges, uh, there's other challenges as well, and we'll, we'll, I want to discuss those with you, but as it relates to the civilian world, working in an office environment or on a team, um, in the military world, you don't always get to pick who, who you're leading or who you're working with. And so you need to find common ground to, to start from someplace. And, and I'm assuming under underwater, uh, in a submarine, the, 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 the common ground is, is you want to stay afloat or keep moving forward, et cetera. But you, you mentioned that there were some really interesting lessons that people can learn in regards to leadership and not leading by title, but by, by other influences. Can you share that a little bit? Absolutely. Uh, there is a common enemy. Uh, as, I, as I often say uh, in the submarine force, the enemy is always out there. It's the water, and it wants to get inside the ship. So regardless of at war or not, we're always at war against the water. But yeah, it's, a, uh, it's an interesting situation. And you know, I first thought of it as, you know, I don't, I don't get to pick my team. These are the guys that show up, and I'm expected to mold them into greatness. And then I, um, you know, when trying to think about it, I think everyone has that to a certain extent, unless you're the person in your organization that does the hiring. You're in the same position as me, which Mm -hmm. is somebody signed up, somebody else said, you look good enough. And then they come to your organization and you're like, well, what skills do you have? What skills do you not have? And how do I get you to fit? into the gigantic cog wheel of the machine that is my organization. You know, where is the place that you fit best? And that can be tough. Some people have skills, other people don't, and you're trying to find those gaps. And, you know, to the point of you're trying to, you're trying to find what motivates them. You know, Simon Sinek often talks about start with why, but it tends to be in terms of the why of your organization. What I found is that you know, the, the commanding officer of any military unit, he's got a why. He understands why he's there and how the unit contributes to national security or whatever. But, you know, the junior enlisted man, that's not his why. You know, he, he or she may have signed up for the college money. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He or she may have signed up simply to get out of their hometown. Um, and so trying to understand the people on your team and why are they there? What are they hoping to achieve? And how, as, how I, as the leader, can best enable that, you know, to, to help them achieve their goals while also achieving the larger organization's goals. Because I've often found that if your people feel like you understand them or at least care and will try your best to take care of them and help them achieve what they desire, they will work immensely hard to help you achieve what you desire. Mm-hmm. Because they don't want to let you down. And so 
that's how I've always led is just trying to understand my people, what makes them tick. If, if there's anything what I, what I learned early on was that if you want to be an effective leader, you've got to be a study of human behavior. And so that's what I try to use. Uh, to your point, uh, a lot of people think that because I'm in the military, leadership is easy because I can just tell people to do things. And that's true. I can 100% force people to do what I want them to do. But I feel like that that's the minimum bar. And you're going to get minimum output because they're not bought in. They're not bought into you as their leader, and they're not bought into the organization as a whole. It ends up becoming, well, nobody here cares about me, so why should I care about what goes on here? Right. And so, you know, I could sit there and, and browbeat people, but it's the, uh, it's, it's the classic from Office Space. Uh, that, that'll make people do just enough to not get fired, Bob. Um, <laughs> and, and that's it, what you'll get. Uh, and you're stuck okay. with that problem. And you're still stuck with that problem. Exactly. Um, you know, I'm still trying to succeed, but I'm only going to get, and, and, you know, the, the one fun, fun thing about the military is that uh, we always say, if you don't like your work environment, just wait a couple of years, it'll change because somebody is going to go on to their next job, either above or below you. Um, and so in the military, people can survive by leading an organization like that because any organization can achieve uh, a moderate level of success in the short term to that style of leadership. The question will be, when you leave and you're the guy that put the organization on your back, what happens to the organization? Yeah. When nobody's bought in and nobody's trained and nobody knows what you were doing to make it successful, it'll fall on its face. And so, and then it'll spiral because not only will you start, will the organization start failing, but people will, will start floundering trying to save it and because you never trained them they don't know how and so they can see the ship sinking and they can't find a bucket yeah you know where we see that sometimes and we see it a lot actually is in uh, sports let's say football or basketball and you know we talk about who is from whose coaching tree so like uh-huh. Bill Parcells was with a coach with the Giants, then he went with the Jets, then he was with Patriots, and then he was with the Cowboys. And But you can see from Bill Parcells what other coaches came out of that coaching tree. Or with San Francisco 49ers, with Bill Walsh, who came from his coaching tree, right? Um, real coaches do real coaching, and therefore they end up having an impact on the sport, not just on the team, right? Whereas a person can be a coach for a while and maybe they're fired or whatnot uh, or they leave, but you can say, who was on their coaching tree? Eh, maybe nobody, right? And what, yeah. you're, and what you're sharing in an organization, um, yeah, you can – you can get people to do things via the title, but after you leave, does it implode, right? Or does somebody have to come behind you and actually have to improve it? Um, and that's your signature. That's your signature, right? And you have a real passion. Absolutely. You have a real passion for mentoring and teaching, and you're very clear in your communication, very clear. 
it, it's easy to follow along and it's really to, easy to understand what it is that you want and and how to get how to get done what needs to be done. Um, but what are some of the challenges that you see on the horizon for you know young people today uh, in regards to communication, how they want to impact their organizations? Uh, what, what are some of the challenges that you see because you work with different age brackets uh, across the spectrum as well? I think the uh, I, I, and I do. I uh, it's funny. I was recently riding a submarine um, where I realized that uh, now the officers that are on that submarine were born after I joined the Navy, and that's just a disenchanting moment when you recognize that. <laughs> but um, but such, such is life when you when you've uh, been in the Navy for twenty three years. Um, I think one of the biggest challenges is. Managing expectations. It's kind of interesting. Uh, I'm a Gen X kind of guy, you know, 1975, where expectations are low. Uh, we're the forgotten generation a lot of times. Um, and so just latchkey kids trying to survive. Mm, there's and a term. I, there's a term I haven't yeah. heard in a while. Latchkey kids. Correct. Absolutely. Right. Um, and it's funny because you see it in the media now where with the labor shortage and, and, and stuff that, you know, people are having to leave their kids at home. And, uh, and there's all these news stories about, oh, my God, how, how, how possibly can that happen? And every kid that, was, that grew up in the 80s is like, well, it goes pretty well. Just <laughs> give, us a, give me a TV and some Kool-Aid and I'll probably be okay. What I see with uh, this younger generation, and, and, you know, and you hate to say this younger generation, like I'm yelling at kids to get off my lawn, but they're so enthusiastic. They're so wide-eyed and bright, shiny-eyed about their ability to have an impact and change the world. And you see them start to get disenchanted when they realize it's a lot harder than they thought. Especially you join you join a, a monolithic organization like the Department of Defense. <laughs> it does not move fast, but it will grind you in its gears if you get, at, get in the wrong place. And, uh, and to get these these young officers and young sailors to kind of realize, like, hey, you've got to get to a certain level of the organization before you can truly affect change is difficult sometimes. And getting people to realize that changing the world for everybody is difficult. But if you can change the world for somebody, that's important, too. Yes. And uh, that's how I approached it was, you know, I, like we said, I was a music major. I was going to get out and go be a band director. And I decided to stay in. And uh, when I went to my department head tour on a fast attack submarine as the navigator and operations officer, uh, my attitude was big Navy is not a fun organization. But what if I could make one department in the submarine force? a place where people at least weren't miserable to come to work. Mm -hmm. What would that be like? And I feel like I did it pretty well. We did some good things. A lot of my, uh, my sailors went on to very high positions on other submarines. And you kind of realize that sometimes changing the world is just the four bricks that you can handle. And so then I tried to, decided to do that for, try to do that for an entire submarine, try to make a commanding officer to say, okay, we're going to have our missions. We're going to achieve our missions. Um, we're going to try to do, you know, be the best that we can. 
but the real goal is to make people into good people, you know, help, help people be the best of themselves because I can't change the larger Navy, but if I can create an environment that's within my control where people can achieve and grow and be better than they thought they could be, then that's a worthy endeavor. And getting some of the some of the younger folks to understand that, I mean, it took me 18 years to become a submarine commanding officer before I had the opportunity to do that. And that's a long time to grind to where you can then have the opportunity to try to affect that change. And I see so many people get disillusioned because they're not having an immediate impact in their organization. And it's because they don't understand that it's going to take time before you can. Well, and to put it into perspective, 18 years, I mean, that's a lifetime for some of the enlisted. Yeah, 18 absolutely. Years. But, they, but they go through school and they get, uh, you know, you hate to say no, they get their head pumped full of ideas, but they, they get this idea that you've got to be out there, you've got to be changing the world, you've got to be solving cancer or global warming or you're not doing enough. And this is like, hey, the, the world is a huge place with really big problems. But sometimes just solving the small problems for one person changes their world. And that's, that's, worth, that's a worthwhile endeavor too. Amen. Amen. That's controlling the things you can control and, and being, being present where you are. Absolutely. So, but I mean, as far as, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. No, I was going to say, you know, you know a, a lot of people would like to say work ethic or you know, things like that. I think that's the biggest issue that I see. Different generations work differently. You know, you, you see that here post, well, not even post pandemic as we're continuing in the pandemic. But, you know, that idea of dedication checks. Hey, are you still in the office at six o'clock at night? Dedication is good. Well, okay, but are you being effective or are you just biding your time? And I think the, the younger generation is much better at working smarter and not harder and really just working smarter and not wasting time to say you were in the building. Mm-hmm. I think they're much more efficient with their time. They're much more, um, let's, let's have an effect. And if it's not having an effect, I'm just not going to bother with it. But I think, yeah, I think the biggest issue that I see is that understanding that things take time and, they, and it's longer than you think. Well, you have some really unique skills that helped you be successful. And I really think that one of the things that you're able to do is parse emotions from what needs to get done. You know, it's it's a, a connection of wanting something beautiful, but at the same time, you know, these are the things that need to be taken care of. And then you're able to articulate that as in a way that matters and means something to the person that you're speaking with. Would you say that that's correct? I, th- I think so. It's a, it's a matter of being very clear as the leader of your expectations. You know, you got, you got to, where, where I find that emotional statements or, you know, touchy-feely statements get in the way and become part of the problem is, when you weren't clear as the leader of what the expectation was to begin with. And so you kind of give a vague, hey, I need you to do this thing, but you weren't clear about when do you need to do, what to what level does it need to get done. And then you find yourself getting frustrated later on because 
it didn't get delivered when you wanted it. Well, you weren't clear on that. And so then it becomes a question of, well, now we have to have discussions with our subordinates on why did you do this thing? Like, well, I didn't know that that's what you wanted. And so now it's a, are you a bad leader or he hates me or, and it's like, it's not emotional. And so you just have to be clear from the get-go. Right. And part of that is, is as a leader, understanding yourself what you want. This is what I want. This is what I need. This is what I am about. And clearly communicating that to people. That way, when you don't get it, or you get it, but it isn't up to snuff, you can say, hey, look, I love you to death. You're a great person. But I clearly told you exactly what needed to happen. And I think we can both agree you didn't need it. You know, here's the email that says, I need this on Wednesday. And now it's Thursday. This isn't a factor of me not liking you as a person. I think you're great, but it's Thursday. And you said, I told you I need it on Wednesday. You know, and that's, there's no emotion in that. Right. Um, and even there will still be times where people will just mess up. And getting emotional about mistakes keeps us from learning from the mistake. And so, you know, I, I often told my sailors uh, when they checked on board my submarine, I was like, look, you're going to make mistakes. I understand that and I expect that. Mistakes are how people learn. Now, I'm going to try to do everything I can to avoid that. We're going to have training. We're going to, you know, we're going to walk through the evolution. You're going to have people monitoring you. We're going to get qualified. We're going to take tests. And guess what? You're still going to make it, make a mistake. And that's okay. Cause I expect it. What I expect you to do is to own it. Hey, I know what you told me to do. I messed it up. Fantastic. Now let's go figure out why. Did I not give you enough training? Was I not clear? Did I put you in a bad situation where, you know, you've been up for 24 hours and then I asked you to do something that requires a significant amount of mental effort? Yeah. You know, any, any number of things can happen where we put somebody in a bad position because everyone comes to work wanting to do well. You know, nobody comes to work and says, today's the day that I just don't care. I'm going to screw things up. In fact, I would like to get yelled at today. No, no one has ever said that in the morning. And yet we find ourselves in these situations where people make mistakes. Yes. And, uh, and I find as the leader, it's your job to be unemotional about it and just go, okay, what went wrong? Let's figure out why it went wrong. And how can we, A, learn for that individual B, learn for the team in the organization. Here's what happened in this situation so you guys can recognize when you're about to make the same mistake. And then, you know, C, if we need to, put some processes in place to keep that from happening. But if you get emotional about it, you're going to lose the ability to learn from it. And instead, you're just, you're acting out of rage or some fit of passion and you're going to blind yourself to it's probably a much larger issue that needs to be attacked to be tackled. It also allows people to discount what you're saying because then they can 
blame the rage rather than the content of what you're actually trying to get across. Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, and I, and I've done it. We've, uh, we've all done it. Uh, I'm sure you had that moment where you, uh, you intend to have one conversation and based on how the person you're talking to reacts, it kind of trips you offline and you feel, you feel your face get a little flushed and maybe you start saying stuff that you didn't mean to say. And you can see when it happens, A, you know, when, when I've accidentally kind of gone off the rails, I can feel it happening. And, uh, and I realize I'm like, I don't mean to go here, but I can also see it in their eyes. You know, they kind of get glassy. You can mm-hmm. see that they're shutting down mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and you can see it's like, you know what, anything that I'm saying right now is just going to make me feel bad later. And they're not listening anyway. Correct. Yeah, it's periscope down at that point. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, there's, and it's it's funny because you can see it, and then and then I go to my stateroom afterwards. I'm like, I didn't mean to do that. You know, I'm usually pretty good at keeping it from being a personal attack because it's never personal, but I, I I will get a little passionate um, about situations, which passion is good. Sure. Um, if you, if you're not passionate, it means you don't care. But sometimes I I may get a little more passionate than I intended to. Um, well, the way I look at it, the way I look at it is there are lessons I would like to learn from this situation, but I don't want it to be a situation where other people are learning from my lessons, right? In other Ab- words, absolutely. I want to be around <laughs> to to learn from this. I don't want I don't want me not being around to be part of the learning process. Exactly. Let's let's all get better from this. <laughs> let's all get better from this. Well, let me ask you this question: as we uh, we're we're going to wrap up here because I know that your time is extremely extremely tight. What are you curious right now outside of work? I mean, you're, you being a nuclear propulsion examiner is a full time job, no doubt. But what are you curious about outside of work right now? Uh you know, so many things. My, my wife uh, routinely laughs at me because I'm reading three different books at any given moment. Um, you know, like like right now I'm reading uh, The Book of Five Rings by um, Miyamoto Musashi, but I'm also reading Talking to Strangers by Malcolm Gladwell. And so I, uh, what I'm curious about is just how to improve my own skill set in helping people get better because I, I think it's a never-ending process leadership is hard we, we often used to joke um, when i was in college that you know we'd go to these leadership classes i'm like well you can't pour leadership out of a cereal box right you can't take somebody who's not a leader and just say go to this class and now you're a leader and to a certain extent i think that's still true you can't make somebody who doesn't want to be in charge successful at being in charge but somebody who is comfortable being in that spotlight and being held accountable, I think you can help them be better at it. I find myself recently um, really trying to dig in and become a master of that craft, mm-hmm. of trying to be able to understand um, from an empathic, not a sympathetic point of view, why people do what they do. And to help them realize why they why they act the way they do, and how to take their inherent nature and skills to be the best that they can possibly be. 
And what were the name of those two books again? Yeah, the, the Five Rings and Malcolm. Yeah, the Book of Five Rings by uh, Musashi. It's a, a treatise on a treatise on Japanese warfare. Um, okay. From the samurai age. Okay. And then, uh, and then I'm also reading uh, Talking with Strangers. I believe that's the title by Malcolm Gladwell. Excellent. Um, which is just a so you know a whole book on the things that we wish we knew about the people that we don't talk to. Excellent. Well, I'll put that in the show notes as well. Is there anything you'd like to share that we haven't covered uh, today? I, I don't think so. I, like I said, Paul, I'm just uh, honored and privileged that you, you'd have me on your show. I appreciate the opportunity. I hope it was beneficial for your listeners. And, uh, you know, if, if anybody has any, uh, any follow-on questions, I'm uh, certainly available. Well, what are your coordinates? What are, how do they contact you? What's the best way? Let's see. Probably uh, on Instagram, uh, I've got an account called uh, Silent Deep, S-L-N-T-D-E-E-P, where I just kind of post leadership thoughts and quotes and awesome submarine photos when I have them. Just trying to keep a, a, a constant flow of, uh, of my thoughts about how, how the things that I have learned might apply to anybody. Um, so you could definitely reach out for me on Instagram there, or I uh, just try to Google, uh, you know, Jason Pittman with Submarine Force, and you'll probably find me. Excellent. Excellent. Well, listen, I want to thank you for your time today. It's always a pleasure, and uh, I'm always taking notes. I mean, you know, I, I love not only what you share, but how you share it, and it's, uh, it, it's inspiring to me. So thank you very much for your time today. My pleasure. And I want to thank all of you for tuning in today. And let me encourage you to always invest in what you love.